two dozen hostages, including 13 Israeli women and children, were released from Hamas custody today. That as Israel confirms it released almost 40 Palestinian prisoners and detainees. It's all part of a deal that includes a temporary ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. It's Friday, November 24th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the U.S. Forest Service has had a record number of controlled or prescribed fires this year as it tries to prevent catastrophic wildfires. Plus, former South African Paralympic champion Oscar Pistorius is set to be released from prison almost 11 years after he murdered his girlfriend. And why many of us fear missing out and just have to buy that thing, whatever it is, while it's on sale. We'll dive into the psychology of discounts. It's 401. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. In a first stage of an Israel-Hamas four-day Gaza ceasefire deal, 24 hostages abducted by Hamas on October 7th are now free. They include 13 Israelis, principally women and children, also released 10 people from Thailand and a Filipino citizen through the efforts of Egyptian intermediaries. At the same time... Palestinian friends and families gathered to welcome 39 Palestinian prisoners freed by Israel in the swap deal. Ultimately, President Biden told reporters this afternoon, relations between these two peoples must be resolved. We also look to the future. As we look to the future, we have to end this cycle of violence in the Middle East. We need to renew our resolve to pursue this two-state solution where Israelis and Palestinians can one day live side by side in a two-state solution with equal measure of freedom and dignity. Two states for two peoples. During this pause, humanitarian aid, including food, water, medicines, and fuel, are now being delivered to the region. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports on what the day has been like for Palestinians in Gaza in this pause after seven weeks of war. NPR Gaza producer Anas Baba says it's the first time in weeks he's woken up in southern Gaza without hearing the buzz of an Israeli surveillance drone but it has not been a quiet day. Baba watched trucks beep in celebration, driving in from Egypt, carrying desperately needed fuel and cooking gas. Displaced Palestinians who tried to return to northern Gaza came under Israeli gunfire, according to eyewitnesses. The army declined requests to confirm. By evening, Baba filmed this at the border. Red Cross vehicles driving 24 freed hostages out of Gaza. One woman with silver hair waved out the window to Palestinian onlookers. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The number of children born into hunger has been rising rapidly over the last decade, says the aid group Save the Children. NPR's Nareet Eisenman reports. Save the Children arrived at these estimates by analyzing data from the United Nations, including its food and agriculture organization. The upshot, more than 17 million newborns worldwide will face hunger this year, a jump of more than 20 percent compared to a decade ago. For years, hunger among children had actually been declining, but the trend reversed in 2019 due to economic instability, conflicts, and the worsening climate crisis. Nearly all of the world's undernourished births were in Africa and Asia, with particularly large shares in Democratic Republic of Congo, Uganda, Madagascar, Afghanistan, and Kenya. Narit Eisenman, NPR News. The Dow closed up 117, the Nasdaq off 15. This is NPR News in Washington.
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. A Boston police officer did contribute to the June crash of a vehicle carrying Mayor Michelle Wu, according to a new police report. The report finds the officer driving Wu's car ran a red light. No disciplinary action was recommended. The news was first reported by Boston 25. An earlier report on the accident found the officer did not contribute to the crash. Wu says she's thankful everyone was safe following the accident, and she'll defer to the police department on further action. Tiny particles of smoke from coal power plants are twice as deadly as previously thought. That's according to researchers at Harvard's Chan School of Public Health. WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports. Particles from coal, construction, and traffic emissions were believed to hold equal risk for human health. But this assessment of Medicare records over 20 years shows exposure to coal fire plants more than doubled the risk of a pollution-related death. Study co-author Francesca Domenici says although many communities are phasing out coal, others are building new plants. It's really reinforcing the need of not even considered ever again relying on coal as a source of energy. The study found Massachusetts had relatively few deaths attributed to coal emissions. Residents of Pennsylvania, Ohio, and New York were hardest hit. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. The Boston Ballet's annual performance of The Nutcracker kicks off tonight. The ballet is set to the traditional score by Tchaikovsky. The classic show helps start the holiday season in the city. Miko Nissanen is the artistic director of the Boston Ballet. He says he wants the performance to take people places they don't expect. Whether it's the magic of theater, whether it's the technical excellence or the wow factor of the athleticism of the dancers or the endearment factor of these capable young students who are participating. Hopefully it, it wows you and warms your heart. The ballet runs through the end of the year. We'll have mostly clear skies tonight as temps dip to the mid-20s. Tomorrow looks like another sunny day. We'll have highs in the upper 30s, then warmer on Sunday in the upper 40s with increasing clouds. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Scott Detrow. The first day of an Israel-Hamas ceasefire was filled with drama and some tense moments. Yet the temporary truce did take hold, and as planned, Israeli hostages and Palestinian prisoners were freed. In fact, a surprise development resulted in more releases than expected. President Biden weighed in, saying he liked what he saw. It's only a start, but so far it's gone well. We're joined now by two NPR correspondents in the Middle East. Greg Myrie is in Tel Aviv, and Brian Mann is in the West Bank city of Ramallah. Greg, let's start with you. How did the release of the Israeli hostages play out? Yeah, it was a pretty complicated arrangement with lots of moving parts. Now, Hamas released 13 Israeli hostages, women and children, as expected, and they were they were freed in southern Gaza. The Red Cross then drove them across the border into Egypt and then into southern Israel, and then they went to a military air base uh, for an initial checkup, and, and now some of them have already been flown to hospitals in the Tel Aviv area for more extensive checkups. Uh, on both their uh, medical and emotional condition after this seven-week ordeal. Those freed were the young and the old, four children age nine or younger. One woman was 85. Five more women were in their 70s. 
12 of the 13 came from the same kibbutz mm -hmm. near Oz, which was uh, overrun by Hamas on October 7th. And they were believed to be held in, by Hamas in the, in the tunnels in Gaza and may have very limited knowledge of what happened that day. Kids lost parents, many lost friends and relatives. So after this traumatic ordeal, they may face some additional shocks. Yeah. I mean, Hamas freed additional hostages that were not expected to be released today. What can you tell us about that? So Hamas also released 10 citizens of Thailand and one from the Philippines. We knew that foreign nationals, many of them agricultural workers, were being held, but we didn't know they were going to be released today. So this came as a surprise. They were freed along with the Israelis, uh, but more foreign nationals are still being held, including several Americans. Going to go now to Brian Mann, who's in the West Bank. Uh, Brian, Israel released an even larger number of Palestinian prisoners. What did you see today? Well, this prisoner release got just sparked a massive outpouring of people here in Ramallah. There were protests and gatherings in different parts of the city through the day. This afternoon, I was near the checkpoint where these young Palestinians, all of them under the age of 19, were handed over. It was pretty tense with Israelis uh, firing tear gas into the crowd. The International Red Crescent says one young Palestinian was injured. And then I want you to hear what it sounded like as the first young prisoners, all Palestinian teenage boys, uh, as they came into one of the main squares in the heart of Ramallah. And, and what's remarkable there is that a lot of the chanting, a lot of flags were in praise of Hamas and its leaders, people chanting support for the men who carried out that October 7 terror attack. That violence, of course, left 1,200 Israelis dead, but it's seen by many here as an act of resistance uh, against the Israeli occupation. Yeah, and I mean, we, we've been focused so much on the war in Gaza. How would you describe the atmosphere in the West Bank where you are? It's such a volatile chemistry, Scott. There's rage and frustration with Israel's occupation, which has gone on for years. So many Palestinians have been arrested or detained just in the last few weeks since the October 7 terror attack. People here are also outraged by the violence they've seen unfolding in Gaza, which, of course, has killed thousands of civilians and, and many children there. But, but then along with all that outrage, there were also moments of real tenderness, you know, families being reunited here. I spoke to uh, Walla Othman, who's 36, and she was celebrating the return of her 16-year-old son, Leis. She told me she's just overjoyed, so happy to see her boy after the nine months he was detained by Israel. She said he was taken into custody for throwing stones at Israeli soldiers. Israel, of course, views that as an act supporting terrorism, uh, but people here, including his, his mom, they see it as an act of resistance. Mm -hmm. so, so, Brian, both the Israelis and Palestinians delivered today on their obligations, and that was not a given. Does that mean that we should expect the next few days to go the same way? You know, the big thing I heard is a lot of fear here about violence returning to Gaza after the four-day pause that's planned. People here in the West Bank uh, think there's a risk of more violence here as well. But today was promising uh, that at least this process so far seems to be playing out, uh, if not smoothly, at least successfully. Uh, but as you've been hearing, it was pretty chaotic. I think we're going to have to watch this day by day to see see what happens. Yeah. Going to go back to Greg Myrie now. Is this temporary truce helping with the humanitarian crisis in Gaza? Well, it certainly helped today, Scott. It looks like more aid entered Gaza today than any day since the war broke out seven weeks ago. The United Nations says that 200 aid trucks crossed from neighboring Egypt into southern Gaza with 
water, food, and medicine. This also included several trucks with fuel and cooking gas, uh, two items that are uh, desperately needed. Uh, so this certainly helps, but it's still just a small fraction of what Gaza needs. And again, this is a temporary pause, uh, hope last uh, four days. It could be extended for up to maybe as, as long as 10 days. But uh, if, if that's uh, the only period that this additional aid gets into Gaza, then it's by no means a permanent solution. There's more than 2 million people in the territory. Mm -hmm. Virtually everyone needs uh, some sort of assistance. Greg, I'm going to end with an optimistic question. Does this breakthrough today that we saw uh, with, with prisoner exchange, hostage exchange, with the truce holding for, for the day at least, does this suggest that we could see additional negotiations toward a longer term ceasefire or even an end to the war? So, Scott, I think that still seems a long way off at this point. The Israeli leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, continues to stress that his goal is the complete destruction of Hamas. And you certainly have a long way to go. The Israelis are controlling much of northern Gaza, but they haven't gone into southern Gaza on the ground, so we could see more heavy fighting there. Netanyahu says that Israel is just not interested in a long-term ceasefire and is is promising essentially that the war will continue. Mm -hmm. uh, President Biden in his remarks this afternoon said that the Israeli goal of uh, eliminating Hamas was indeed legitimate. And for its part, Hamas still holds more than 200 hostages. This includes Israeli men and soldiers. And the militant group knows this gives them some leverage and it is likely to make very, very tough demands uh, when it comes to, to this group of hostages. That was NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv, as well as Brian Mann in the West Bank. Thanks to both of you. When the play Roe premiered in 2016, the landmark Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade was still the law of the land. The play follows two major characters, Jane Roe and her attorney, as they wrestle with their own views on abortion. An updated version was recently staged in Louisiana, a state that now has a near-total abortion ban. Aubrey Uhas of member station WWNO reports, and a note, this story contains descriptions of abortion methods. The abortion debate in the U.S. was far from settled when Roe the play premiered. Many believed it was just a matter of time before the 1973 ruling would be overturned. And they were right. You know, there are certain lines in the play that are not true in the state of Louisiana. Lori Parquet is the director of the state's first production of Roe, put on this month by Louisiana State University's theater department in Baton Rouge. Even though the play was updated after Roe fell last year, Parquet says it doesn't feel totally up to date in a place where it's almost impossible to get an abortion. Still, its new opening line hits home. Good evening. My name is Sarah Weddington. And I was the lawyer who argued Roe versus Wade. And tonight, I deliver its obituary. The play's preview was sold out. Its 200 seats were filled mostly with college undergrads. Anyone here remember what it was like before Roe? That's all right. You weren't alive yet. Understandable. For students, the play is both historic and contemporary. They're living in a world without Roe for the first time. And it shows. Weddington talks about how before abortion was legal, some hospitals had entire wards dedicated to botched procedures and at-home attempts. Some women do it themselves. They take 
Lysol or turpentine. They use a telephone wire. From the audience, a trio of young men drop their jaws in horror. These women shouldn't have to do this. It has to change. Roe is meant to show the many sides of the issue. The idea is to bridge the divide by focusing on the people behind the case and their own messy views on abortion. The play has seen a spike in popularity since Roe versus Wade fell, especially in states with tough abortion laws. Parquet, the director, says the role of theater is to help people understand the present. And sometimes that means going into very charged territory. I hope everyone felt heard. Kate Zenor plays Linda Coffey, Weddington's co-counsel, and a number of other characters on both sides of the issue. Her family, including her 92-year-old grandfather, saw the show. They all oppose abortion rights. My mom was asking me, like, well, is the show pro-choice or pro-life? And I kind of told her, I'm like, a lot of people who are pro-life think the show is too pro-choice, and a lot of people who are pro-choice kind of think the show is a bit too pro-life. So I'm like, we're kind of just aiming to make everyone mad a little bit. (laughs) After the show, students were willing to share their thoughts on the play, and some on abortion more generally, like Tyrell Thompson. At first, I felt like, like a woman should have a kid. But now, like, I just feel like it should be open to whatever they feel. And, like, everybody has their own side, but you don't know everybody's story, so. Abortion is a largely settled issue among elected officials in Louisiana. Many politicians in the state oppose abortion rights, including Democrats. Roe is dead here, but Roe the play lives on. For NPR News, I'm Aubrey Uhas in Baton Rouge. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, burning forests under controlled conditions in order to prevent catastrophic wildfires. We'll tell you why the U.S. Forest Service this year had more prescribed fires than ever. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont. Celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event, now through January 2nd. On this shortened day on Wall Street, the Dow gained 117 points, a third of a percent. The S&P went up just a hair, 0.06 percent. NASDAQ dipped 0.1 percent. In area business news, the Cambridge venture capital firm behind Moderna is launching a new biotech company. Flagship Pioneering announced the new company, Quotient Therapeutics, this week. It'll work on drugs for cancers and aging-associated illnesses out of offices in Massachusetts and the United Kingdom. Flagship Pioneering invested $50 million in the enterprise. It's the first time the biotech funder has backed a firm that's in both the U.S. and the U.K. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts today. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com slash go. It's a busy day after Thanksgiving in Boston sports. The Bruins lost 5-2 to two to the Detroit Red Wings at the Garden this afternoon. And right now, the Celtics are facing the Orlando Magic on the road. The Celtics are down. Uh, Magic are leading 75-72 to 72 right now in the third quarter. 
And taking a look at the forecast, tonight will be mostly clear and quite chilly with temperatures in the mid-20s. We'll get to the upper 30s tomorrow with sunny skies. It's 45 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world, and every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Scott Detrow. Why is it so hard for the human brain to resist a discount? Let's do a Black Friday experiment. See how you feel when you hear this. Buy one, get one, half off everything. Buy one, get one deals throughout the store. This is a radio program, not a store, but still, maybe you can't help wonder what's on sale. What's that four-letter word doing to your psyche? NPR's Alina Selyuk reports. If sales generally can feel hard to resist, the sale in front of Aaron Shervich was the ultimate test. Snatch this opportunity before it evaporates. It was a car at a dealership he trusted in Omaha, Nebraska, right when he really needed one in peak pandemic shortages, the very same Kia as he'd had before and loved $4,000 off. Today, it's this price. Almost a 25% discount. I figured that I would be an idiot not to take advantage of that. So he did, speeding through paperwork. You know, it's that that kind of voice in the back of my head that's like, well, are you, are you being a sucker? And unfortunately, that day, that voice was a little bit quieter than it ought to have been. The deal went south. There were hidden charges. His brand new car needed repairs. Shervich jokes now that he paid a tax for being a fool. But his big ticket example illustrates the dynamics that play out when any of us fall for a sale. It's not always bad, but always a rush. The human brain has essentially evolved to feel first and think Next. Carolyn Yoon studies consumer neuroscience at the University of Michigan. She says seeing something you like on sale activates the emotional part of the brain. The whole reward circuitry is activated. And that's where you get that hit of dopamine that motivates you to go for what makes you feel good. As a shopper, you have that reward circuitry. It's pumping you up. You're already imagining how life with this new thing will be so great. And as a counterbalance, you have your cognitive function, which is like a little accountant saying, Do I really need this? Is it really worth it? I have a budget. But then a sale is like a thumb tipping that mental scale. In fact, for most of us, just getting the discount, just finding it, already registers as a gain, rewarding in and of itself, says Jorge Barraza, a consumer psychologist at the University of Southern California. Not only are we getting the product, but we're also getting that reward that we we discovered something, we've earned this extra thing. And then we layer more emotional baggage on that scale, like FOMO, the fear of missing out. This kind of need to avoid losses or what's referred to as loss aversion, right? This is where the FOMO could come in. Like, I will be losing out if I don't take advantage of the sale. Stores obviously know this about us and they try to push these buttons. They create urgency, like that car dealership saying the price is today only. 
They create scarcity, Black Friday sale while supplies last. It's not just limited time, but if I don't go, they might run out of this thing and I might not be able to get it. Stores also use all kinds of pricing tricks. A common one is a decoy price. That's when you see, for example, on the candy shelf, there's a big bag and a medium bag, but the medium size is much smaller and only a little cheaper. So you get the big one thinking it's the best deal and the store has sold you the most expensive option they have. But to make us all feel a little better, even experts struggle to resist sales. This literally happened to me last year. Baraza came to look at TVs and instead almost bought a video game console. Swept up by the excitement and the urgency and the fear of missing out, he and others say one way to tackle this is to stick to a shopping list planned in advance. Or do some Googling to see if that discount really is a particularly good deal. But fundamentally, it's all about giving yourself time to think, which Baraza was forced to do standing with that gaming system in a long line to check out. I was saved by that line. It gave me enough time to reflect. Remember, we feel first, think later. So give your internal accountant a bit of a fighting chance. Alina Seluch, NPR News. Let's look at how one Supreme Court decision rippled out through a small town in Oklahoma. When the town experienced a rash of gang violence, state prosecutors were hamstrung because the town sits on Native American land. Max Bryant from member station KWGS in Tulsa reports the local district attorney banked on his relationship with the local tribe to fight the violence. It's not too bad outside, Delaney. Oh, how are you doing today? (laughs) That's Jeremy Foltz opening the Seminole Nation Oklahoma radio show. Once a week, Fultz and his co-host talk about community events and read announcements for members of the Seminole Nation in central Oklahoma. And on October 31st, Fultz took a break talking about Halloween festivities to read this statement. The Seminole Nation Light Horse Police Department has been actively investigating several major crimes in the city of Wewoka. Uh, these crimes are related to gang activities between two gangs. For weeks, Wewoka, a central Oklahoma town of 3,000, saw several shootings, including a homicide allegedly tied to gangs. One of the gangs is primarily indigenous. The violence led to the cancellation of a popular festival. Wewoka Public Schools canceled class for a day. And some people in Wewoka, like local pastor Joe Ward, weren't taking any chances. We'll have a code word in our bulletin that everybody in here will know that they can, if I ever say it from the pulpit, because I can see the doors, unless they're told otherwise, they're going to be hitting the floor and getting out of getting out of view of whoever's coming in. In early November, six suspects in connection with the violence were arrested. But prosecuting gang members can be tricky in this part of the country. Because of a 2020 Supreme Court decision, the local district attorney cannot prosecute any indigenous members of the two gangs. In McGirt versus Oklahoma, the high court ruled eastern Oklahoma, including Wewoka, is a Native American reservation, so only tribal and federal law applies to indigenous people. And for District Attorney Eric Johnson, that means building relationships within the Seminole tribe. We all have the same interest, and so it's just finding that common ground. Johnson's willingness to work with the tribe contrasts the attitude of Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt, who has openly opposed the Supreme Court decision. His opposition has led to a fractured relationship with the tribes as the state and its local prosecutors can no longer charge native residents with crimes. But at the Seminole State of the Nation address this year, Assistant Principal Chief Brian Palmer said his tribe can look after itself. Our courts 
They're able to protect us. We are prosecuting everything from the worst crimes of rape and murder down to a traffic ticket. And that is the responsible thing to do. That's the thing to do for our people. And in this latest outbreak of gang violence, they have worked with Johnson and the feds. Johnson points out that tribal courts are only capable of sentencing defendants to up to three years in prison, which means serious crimes are better handled by the federal courts. Johnson says to keep his community safe, it's critical to work with the tribes and the feds. With the relationships we have in Seminole County and specifically in Wawoka, uh, with all the federal assets and my cooperation that I've received from the U.S. Attorney's Office, I don't feel like I'm going to have any challenges like that. Since the six suspects were apprehended, things have started to calm down in Wewoka, and authorities say more arrests are possible. For NPR News, I'm Max Bryan in Tulsa. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for spending part of your afternoon with us here on 90.9 WBUR. Ahead on All Things Considered, ski patrol workers unionize in the face of sky-high resort housing prices. And ever wonder where lost luggage that isn't reunited with its owner ends up? It goes to a store in Alabama where its contents are sold to the public. We'll take you there. It'll be mostly clear tonight with temps in the mid-20s. Tomorrow looks sunny. Highs will be in the upper 30s. Clouds will move in over the course of Sunday with temperatures in the upper 40s. Then Monday is looking rainy, especially the first half of the day. We'll have temps Monday in the low 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science. All aboard! Trains at Science Park now open. See model trains in the classic winter landscape or Polar Express in 4D. Visit mos.org. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. On this week's Wait, Wait, Eric Schmidt, the former chairman of Google, explains why you would want to work there or not. Free breakfast, lunch, and dinner, massages, you name it. Bring your dog to work. Bring your other pets. We had one employee decide that the policy allowed him to bring his boa constrictor to work. I'm Peter Sagal. Listen to this week's show with the animal of your choice. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. 24 hostages were freed today after being held by Hamas militants since the attack on Israel October 7th. President Biden said their release came about after weeks of negotiations with leaders across the Middle East. He said that negotiations will not stop until all hostages are home. Biden said he did not know when the Americans held by Hamas will be freed. Police in Ireland say nearly three dozen people were arrested last night after protests in central Dublin turned violent. As Villa Marx reports, the demonstrations were sparked by a knife attack earlier in the day. After a knife attack in the city centre left four people wounded, three of them young children, the unexpected disorder that followed left city buses and police vehicles destroyed by fire and a dozen stores heavily damaged. 
Ireland's top police officer called it, quote, huge destruction from a riotous mob that he said was driven by a far-right ideology, and authorities said police would prepare for further violence. Today is Black Friday when holiday shopping is underway in earnest. Steve Beckner reports. Black Friday is not what it used to be, so named traditionally because it came the day after Thanksgiving and marked the moment when retailers went into the black for the year and turned a profit. Black Friday specials have been running all week. Hefty discounts are drawing hordes to brick and mortar and online stores. With inflation still coming down and consumers being more cautious in their spending, major chains are cutting prices 30 to 50 percent, sometimes more on apparel, sporting goods, toys, and other gifts. Many stores open before dawn, but increasingly people avoid the traffic crunch by shopping online. For NPR News, I'm Steve Beckner. In a shortened trading day today, the Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 177 points. The Nasdaq index fell 15 points. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Massachusetts health officials report nearly 2,000 new COVID cases over the last seven days. That's according to data released this week. Health officials are reporting 1,890 new cases along with 14 new COVID-related deaths in Massachusetts. That represents an uptick of about 200 cases in the state. That's after COVID levels in Boston increased more than 90 percent in the first weeks of November. The city's Public Health Commission is giving out thousands of rapid tests at locations across the city. The state of Massachusetts is investing nearly $400,000 in new criminal justice programming. The 13 grants will support restorative justice programs at community organizations and nonprofits. Restorative justice programs often bring victims and perpetrators together after a crime. Supporters say such programs improve public safety. A popular holiday light display opens to the public today at three trustees of the reservation's properties. Winter lights is put on by the trustees at its properties in Canton, North Andover, and Stockbridge. The trustees' Mary Detloff says it's a very family-friendly event. Children especially really delight in this event because it's just a very magical setting at all these places to come and see these lights. We also have the wish tree where you can write on a paper tag what your wish is for the coming year. Trustees of the Reservations also hosts indoor holiday displays at some of its other properties. Christmas at Castle Hill, located at the mansion on Crane Estate in Ipswich, opens December 1st. And Christmas at the Manse offers tours of the trustees' colonial home in Concord every Saturday and Sunday in December. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading health care systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. A busy day in Boston sports. The Bruins lost to the Detroit Red Wings at the Garden. The score was 5-2. to two. The Celtics are on the road against the Orlando Magic this afternoon. The Seas are down right now. The score is 85-74. to 74. Tonight will be a cold one. Temperatures will get down to the mid-20s under mostly clear skies. We'll have highs in the upper 30s tomorrow with lots of sunshine. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, now playing exclusively in theaters. 
From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Scott Detrow. The U.S. Forest Service burned a lot of land this year, and it did it on purpose. Altogether, it set fire to just under 2 million acres. Forest managers say even more prescribed fires are now needed to reduce flammable vegetation and to address the U.S. wildfire crisis that a recent congressional report called urgent, severe, and far-reaching. But not everyone is on board with this plan. From member station KUNM in New Mexico, Alice Fordham reports. It's a chilly 7 in the morning at the U.S. Forest Service's El Rito Ranger Station, about 90 minutes north of Santa Fe. El Rito's a small town just on the edge of the mountainous Carson National Forest. A couple dozen people in flame-resistant clothes gather for a briefing. Good morning, everybody. First, a crackly radio report on today's weather. Good. It's good news. Today, the team is beginning a prescribed burn. They've been waiting for it to be dry, and the wind forecast is crucial. It needs to be breezy enough to move the fire along, but not so windy the fire could escape. As team leaders step up to explain the day's plan, burn boss George Alalunis gives the big picture. The intent of what we're doing here today is we're returning fire to the landscape, and the, the purpose is we want to help create a more fire-resilient community. All over the U.S., especially in the West, Climate change has made fire seasons longer and forests more vulnerable to fire. Drought and heat mean more pests and dead vegetation. Plus, for more than a century, government policy suppressed fire in places where it happens naturally, so forests are overgrown. There are often people living right in these tinderboxes, as District Ranger Angie Crawl reminds. People make a living off of this forest, grazing cattle, uh, getting their elk right now and to bringing wood down to be warm for the winter. A controlled burn like today's is designed to burn flammable undergrowth and avert a bigger fire in future. This team has been doing a lot of them all year. I know a lot of us are a little tired, but I'm so glad to see you showing up the way you are here today. That's a good copy, thank you. We drive up forest roads to a spot where a team unloads drip torches, puts on helmets and heads into the trees. So that's one of our ignition groups. Aaron Livingston explains this is a test burn. And then if it's all favorable, we'll, we'll continue with ignitions for the day. They start at the top of a hill and zigzag down, dripping, burning fuel as they go. Foot-high flames leap up. We want to see that it's consuming well, but not too intense. This burn is intended to cover about seven square miles of forest land. The team is divided into groups that will target different zones and later will monitor the fire's edges. If it escapes, they'll declare a wildfire, start building fire breaks with a pre-positioned dozer and deploy a fire truck known as Big Red. Meantime, District Ranger Angie Crawl heads off to a string of small agricultural communities in a nearby river valley. She's on more of a hearts and minds mission. So on, on burns like this, um, it's really important for the agency administrator, the ranger, um, to do a lot of community outreach well in advance. That's press releases, speaking to community leaders, making phone calls and house calls, putting up flyers. Today, she'll stop by a community library and lend an air filter to someone with asthma. 
And it's uphill work because a lot of people are opposed to prescribed fire. They don't like it. They don't want it. They don't want to see the smoke. They don't want to see any fire on the landscape. She tries to be humble. I never want to say, we know what's best. We're the government. You know, that goes over like a lead balloon, generally speaking. And around here, there's a reason for that. Last year, about 50 miles away, two prescribed burns got out of control and became the biggest wildfire the state's ever seen. The Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak fire burned hundreds of homes. Resident Timoteo Chacon sums up a lot of people's feelings. Like the last time that it got away here, obviously they knew it was a time for a windy time and they went ahead and did it. An agency report found one of the prescribed burns went ahead despite the fact a nearby weather station was down, so crews didn't have details on local weather. Analysis after the fact said wind and humidity didn't add up to extreme fire danger over the entire controlled burn zone, but could have over part of the area. The report also said that if burn bosses had listened to locals, they would have known that winds can change direction quickly in that terrain. Once you get uh, kicked, I don't think it's very easy to forget. And it's the same thing with the fires. Once you get uh, punished or you see what you've seen all your life get burned, you lose trust in the people that say they're going to help you. The fire raged for months. President Biden flew into New Mexico to take the blame and promise compensation. I think we have a responsibility as a government as a, to deal with the communities who are put in, in such jeopardy. In the end, a law was passed that put the taxpayer on the hook for an estimated $4 billion of damage. So as smoke gathers in this valley, people do get nervous. People right now, I think all over New Mexico, are very, very aware of what happened. Marlena Fay lives here in Vallecitos. I guess there's a sense that um, they're dangerous. But while the agency pledges to take all these concerns seriously, it's not going to stop burning. Under a wildfire crisis strategy, the Forest Service wants to treat up to 50 million more acres over the next decade or so with thinning and burning, in addition to what it already does every year. Forest ecologists say that's about what's needed to address the backlog in land that would have burned naturally over the many decades that fire's been suppressed. Today, a helicopter drops incendiary balls into the center of the fire while its edges blacken and cool and Crawl keeps making her rounds. We had a bad thing happen last year on Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon. We, have a, we are very humbled by that, and we have a long road to hoe to build back that trust. A national climate assessment published this month estimated Western wildfire will get more severe until the middle of the century. Forest managers never promise that prescribed fire is without risk, but Crawl says one way or another, people are going to have to learn to live with more fire. For NPR News, I'm Alice Fordham in Vallecitos, New Mexico.
All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Labor unions have won some significant victories this year. Strikes in the auto industry, healthcare, and Hollywood have led to new contracts. Now that energy is making its way to higher elevations. Unionizing is growing among ski patrollers at resorts in the Mountain West. Matt Bloom from Colorado Public Radio has more. The base of the Breckenridge Ski Resort is full of early season visitors, waiting their turn to hop on a gondola and ride up the mountainside. Beautiful blue sky. Ryan Deneen is a longtime ski patroller here. One of his many jobs is to jump into action if the gondola malfunctions. We would uh, attach ourselves with a uh, exactly like a zip line kind of wheeled mechanism and lower ourselves down to the cabin with um, some evacuation gear. He also detonates explosives to control avalanches and is an emergency medical technician. He says this is his dream job, but it's gotten harder to do it while supporting a family in Breckenridge where the average home price is over $1 million. We're being told that we're being paid at the highest end of our industry while we're also being provided with links towards um, food banks in the community. In 2021, that disconnect led Deneen to organize a union at Breckenridge, one of 41 resorts owned worldwide by the conglomerate Vale Resorts. I would hope that a union could potentially raise the bar as to what one can expect to make in a mountain community and create a pathway for a future. The newly unionized patrollers won a boost in top level pay from $27 an hour to 32. There are now ski patrol unions in at least four Vail-owned resorts. United Ski Patrols of America says it's fielding inquiries from workers from California to the East Coast. And one resort in Colorado is holding an election this winter. Aaron Hatton is a labor researcher at the University of Buffalo. They're no longer accepting those old terms of we'll pay you in fun. We'll pay you in, well, this is just something you would do anyway or that you love. The National Union says their membership has doubled in five years to almost a thousand members at 10 resorts in Colorado, Utah, and Montana. Hatton says industries that have historically offered seasonal jobs or haven't been seen as long-term career options like ski patrolling are seeing bumps. Those workers are now saying, hang on, we're workers and we demand more than we're getting. We deserve more than we're getting. Vail Resorts declined to be interviewed for this story, but says the company has invested $175 million in increased wages, benefits, and for affordable housing. Patrollers at Colorado's Purgatory Resort organized last year. Dave Rathbun, the resort's general manager, says it initially opposed that, but he admits hiring this year has been easier after union negotiations led to higher pay. It still shows me that people will value this lifestyle and they're going to try the best they can to make it work. 
Back at Breckenridge, patroller Ryan Deneen says the union negotiated wage increase there is great, but still not enough to afford living nearby. But I live in town subsidized housing. My children go to subsidized daycare. Um, we live off of subsidies. And, and that's a part of, of what I think is a flaw in this entire mountain industry. Deneen says there's now more dialogue with managers, and he thinks changes will help keep skiers on the mountain safe and workers coming back. For NPR News, I'm Matt Bloom. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, new research finds births have increased in states that have abortion bans. And the latest on riots in Dublin that led to a few dozen arrests. Authorities are blaming far-right groups for the unrest, which started in response to an attack on three children and a woman outside a school. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Start your holiday weekend with 90.9 WBUR tomorrow morning. The International Committee of the Red Cross is assisting with the transfer of hostages from Gaza to Israel. We'll talk with one of the leads. That story and wait, wait at 10 tomorrow on WBUR. We'll have mostly clear skies tonight as temps dip to the mid-20s. Tomorrow looks like another sunny day. We'll have highs in the upper 30s. Warmer on Sunday in the upper 40s with increasing clouds. Then Monday we'll see rain, most of it before midday. Temperatures Monday in the low 50s. It's 45 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include The Huntington with The Heart Sellers by Lloyd Suh and directed by May Adralis, set on Thanksgiving 1973 through December 23rd, HuntingtonTheater.org, and Landry and Arkari Rugs and Carpeting with a Black Friday event now through the 27th for all handwoven rugs, only online at LandryAndArkari.com. The conflict between Israel and Hamas, deep division in Congress and a looming election, devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR bring you the latest developments on all of these fronts and the context to help make sense of what can, at times, feel like a senseless world. Keep our journalism strong with your year-end contribution. Give at WBUR.org and thanks. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Scott Detrow. If you're planning to fly somewhere this holiday season, you're not alone. The Transportation Security Administration expects to screen at least 30 million people over the holidays. That also means a lot of suitcases for airlines to manage, and I hate to say it, some are going to get lost. But reporter Melanie Peoples actually found them. Every suitcase lost by an airline in the United States and not reclaimed by its owner eventually ends up here, at unclaimed baggage. It's a huge store that takes up an entire city block in Scottsboro, Alabama. 7,000 new items hit the floor every day. Oh, David, let me get that one. And it's all for sale, at a big discount. It's laid out like a department store. Clothes here, shoes there, shelves of books. Because who hasn't accidentally left a book on a plane? But right up these stairs is the jackpot. The most popular area of the store is the mezzanine. 
So this is home to our electronics department. Sunny Hood first started working here as a teenager. So anything from cell phones and laptops, tablets, headphones, you name it, this is where guests are gonna find these items. All electronics are wiped clean to remove any personal data. But there's even more interesting things up here. Skis, snowboards, a lot of skateboards. Who do so many people travel with skateboards? I think this is actually a motor that you connect to a kayak or a canoe of some sort. Musical instruments, you know, souvenir items. You have to wonder about the stories behind all these things. There's a pole vaulting pole here, maybe carried by an Olympian. There are also the wedding dresses. You have to hope they were lost on the way home. Is that a saddle? It looks like it. So we have even a horse saddle. Anything that you can think of, someone has likely packed it in their suitcase. This is a good time to point out that airlines take up to three months trying to reunite passengers with their bags. In the end, Hood says 99.5% of suitcases do not get lost. Even a fraction of a percent of all lost items is going to accumulate quickly when you consider that millions of people travel every single day. So the airlines reimburse their customers, unclaimed baggage buys the luggage, they have exclusive contracts, and the contents find a new home in Scottsboro. It is a rare exception for something here to make it back to its owner, but unclaimed baggage CEO Brian Owens says it has happened with a shipping container. And there was an item, a, a device inside of there that was like suspended by these rubber grommets so it couldn't touch anything. And it, and it had a placard on it. And, and I promise you it said this, it said, uh, handle with extreme caution, I'm worth my weight in gold. It turns out it was a guidance system for a fighter plane, the F-14 Tomcat. The story that was going around the military was, well, the Iranians stole it. It actually was it was not the Iranians. It was sitting in our warehouse in Scottsboro, Alabama. Owen says they gave that one back to the Navy. And when a camera from a space shuttle showed up, they knew where to find NASA. Unclaimed baggage has had so many odd things. A centuries-old violin, ancient Egyptian relics, and a suit of armor. They've created a museum. It's definitely a tourist attraction. A million people stop by every year from all 50 states. Of course, some of them are just looking for a more basic item, like Josh Elliott, who came here from Atlanta with a friend. We found several coats, like bigger coats. Uh, he's about to go to Germany, so we're looking for something particularly like warm and fluffy. It's his first time at Unclean Baggage, and he's not disappointed. This is a lot better than a Goodwill. That's because people donate things they no longer want to Goodwill. These are things people like so much, they took them on a trip with them. In fact, a lot of the clothes here still have new tags on them since many people go shopping before they travel. Brands like Rolex and Chanel are regulars here. And let's not forget about the wedding bands. Curiously, a lot more men's than women's rings seem to go missing. But that's a whole different kind of story. For NPR News, I'm Melanie Peoples in Scottsboro, Alabama. The story of Oscar Pistorius captivated South Africa and the world. Here was a young athlete who defied the odds. Then 10 years ago, Valentine's Day became a nightmare for his girlfriend. Today, the saga took another turn. A parole board ruled that the convicted murderer Oscar Pistorius could walk free. Kate Bartlett reports. After serving over half his 13-year sentence for murdering Reva Steenkamp, 
Paralympic gold medalist Oscar Pistorius will be a free man in January after being granted parole, Correctional Services spokesman Singabako Ngomalo said. The parole placement for Mr. Oscar Pistorius has been confirmed effectively from the 5th of January 2024. Uh, just like all other um, uh, parolees, Mr. Pistorius will be monitored. The double amputee sprinter, dubbed Blade Runner for his high-tech prosthetics, had been an inspiration for many before he shot Steenkamp four times through the closed bathroom door of his Pretoria home on Valentine's night 2013. The athlete, now 37, has always maintained he hadn't known it was her and had shot at what he thought was an intruder in a country with notoriously high crime rates. That claim was ultimately dismissed by the courts. After years of legal wrangling, in a trial that was televised, he was found guilty of murder. This year, under South African law, he became eligible for parole. Steenkamp's mother, June, did not attend the parole hearing, saying she didn't want to see her daughter's killer again. However, she had a family friend read a statement for her ahead of the decision. She said Reva's father, Barry, had died a few months ago of a broken heart. While she did not technically oppose Pistorius's release, she regretted that Pistorius had never admitted what he'd done. I'm not convinced that Oscar has been rehabilitated. If someone does not show remorse, they cannot be considered to be rehabilitated. She also said she was concerned for the safety of women if he was not properly rehabilitated. One of the conditions of his parole is that Pistorius undergo therapy for gender-based violence issues. Tanya Cohen, a lawyer for the Steenkamps, spoke to NPR after the decision. June is satisfied with the conditions imposed by the parole board because it means that they paid attention to what she was saying. And she sees this as a victory for victim participation. South Africa has high rates of violence against women, with almost 900 women murdered in the three months between July and September, according to police statistics. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases, in a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. And from ECMC Foundation, at ecmcfoundation.org. 
Thanks for being with WBUR this afternoon. Join some of your favorite WBUR hosts at City Space for our annual reading of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol on Monday, December 19th. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, the Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Riots in Dublin lead to 34 arrests after police vehicles and buses are set on fire and shops are looted. Authorities blame far-right groups for the riots, saying the groups mistakenly thought an earlier attack on three children and a woman outside a school was carried out by a foreign national. It's Friday, November 24th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, we'll hear from a researcher who found births have increased in states that have abortion bans. Plus, every day in the workplace, people discover ways AI can change our jobs and our lives for better or worse. We'll explore AI where we work. And the final flight of the supersonic transatlantic Concorde happened 20 years ago. We'll look back. It's 5.01. News headlines are first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden says the release of 24 hostages by Hamas is the result of weeks of engagement with leaders in the Middle East. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports Biden says more hostage releases will come in waves. He doesn't have an exact timeline on when American hostages would be released, but he does expect that to happen. President Biden says the negotiations for U.S. hostage releases are just getting started, but he believes the talks have been going well. We also will not stop until we get these hostages brought home and an answer to their whereabouts. Biden says he's been, quote, consistently pressing for a pause in the fighting between Israel and Hamas to get more humanitarian relief into Palestinians in Gaza and also to get the hostages out. Israel has also released 39 Palestinian prisoners as part of the deal. The war is supposed to be put on pause for four days, but Biden says there's a chance that could be extended. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. Ireland's Prime Minister Leo Varadkar today condemned the anti-immigrant demonstrations who staged violent protests yesterday after a woman and three children were stabbed. These criminals did not do what they did because they love Ireland. They did not do what they did because they wanted to protect Irish people. They did not do it out of any sense of patriotism, however warped. They did so because they're filled with hate. Police say the violence started after rumors circulated that a foreign national was responsible for the attack outside a Dublin school. A five-year-old girl remains hospitalized in critical condition. A suspect was tackled by witnesses and is hospitalized in serious condition. This comes amid rising tensions over immigration in Ireland and other parts of Europe. 
Three quarters of Americans say they plan to shop this long holiday weekend, with Black Friday still expected to be the busiest shopping day of the year. Already spending on Thanksgiving Day outpaced last year's, as NPR's Alina Seljuk reports. The National Retail Federation says 74% of U.S. shoppers plan to shop online or in stores between Thanksgiving and Cyber Monday, which is more people than ever. Adobe Analytics, which tracks online shopping, says spending on Thanksgiving Day rose 5.5% compared to last year. The group is forecasting a similar jump in online spending for Black Friday also. Adobe says mobile shopping is reaching an all-time high this year, with 59% of purchases being made on mobile devices so far. The company is estimating online shoppers might see deals peaking at 35% off, suggesting that Friday might offer best deals on TVs, clothes and appliances. Alina Seluch, NPR News. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. The Dow gained 117 points, ending at 35,390. The Nasdaq was down 15, S&P 500 up 2. You're listening to NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Black Friday shopping is underway, and some retailers are seeing more in-person shoppers at their stores than last year. Melissa Levita is marketing director at Cambridge Side Galleria. She says the shopping center is busier today than last Black Friday, and she adds visitors appear to be enjoying meals and snapping family photos, setting a less frenetic tone than in past years. It doesn't feel frantic. You definitely see people up there and they're with their shopping bags, but they're with their families. And it just seems like it's a it's a fun day. It's not crunch time. Polls by the Massachusetts Retailers Association did not predict a shopping surge this year, mainly because of high inflation rates. Massachusetts residents are expected to spend less than the national average. Official Black Friday figures will come in shortly after this week's shopping spree. On Cape Cod, fentanyl has replaced heroin as the main illicit opioid being used. Brian Engels reports on a nonprofit on the Cape that's working to debunk some myths about the risks of fentanyl exposure. The AIDS support group of Cape Cod says one misconception surrounding fentanyl is that simply touching it can lead to an overdose. Eliza Morrison is the group's director of harm reduction services. She says that fentanyl is poorly absorbed through the skin. The risk of if you touch fentanyl with your hands, if it gets on your arm, if it gets on your skin, the risk of you potentially overdosing is very, very low, if not zero. Morrison says there is potential risk if someone has fentanyl on their hands and then touches their mouth. But she says the fear of fentanyl exposure can sometimes prevent people from responding to an overdose. That was Brian Engels reporting. Massachusetts State Police are investigating an early morning crash that resulted in life-threatening injuries to a one-year-old. Police say the incident occurred shortly before 4 a.m. along Route 495 in Andover. Police believe the driver lost control of the car. The infant was transported by helicopter to a Boston hospital. The driver was treated for minor injuries. Tonight will be mostly clear and quite chilly with temperatures in the mid-20s. We'll get to the upper 30s tomorrow with sunny skies. It's 43 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the FDA. Its Remove the Risk campaign encourages people to dispose of the unused, unwanted, and expired opioid medications in their homes. Learn more at fda.gov slash remove the risk. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. And I'm Ari Shapiro. We're only now beginning to understand the consequences of the Supreme Court's decision last year to reverse the constitutional right to abortion. 
A new study shows that in states that have abortion bans, births have increased. Economists at Georgia Tech and Middlebury College conducted this research published by the nonprofit Institute of Labor Economics. Caitlin Myers of Middlebury is one of the study's co-authors. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me, Ari. How much of a difference did abortion bans make in the number of babies born compared to states where abortion remains widely available? Well, it increased the number of births in states enforcing total bans. Our research shows that near total bans on abortions resulted in about a 2.3% increase in births relative to what we would have expected if those states weren't enforcing bans. That is about 30,000 additional births on an annual basis as a result of abortion bans that were enforced in the first months after the Dobbs ruling. And so you're noting here that some states have partial bans. Your research looked into states with total bans. That 30,000 births number, can you put it into perspective for us? Is it higher or lower than you would have anticipated? Yeah, it's really quite a large number. It reflects about a fifth to perhaps a fourth of people in those states who are seeking abortions and who otherwise would have obtained abortions who aren't accessing abortion services as a result of the bans. So it's a significant number of people in those states. And based on what we learned from the decade prior to Dobbs, I had predicted what the effect of the first set of bans on births might be. And the prediction was about 30,000 fewer births. So when we came through and measured that, it was perhaps in some ways not surprising at all. Can I ask how you measure and identify people who would have gotten an abortion but for the ban? Is that just self-reporting? It is not self-reporting because it is very difficult to obtain accurate self-reported information on abortion seeking, as you can imagine. So there's a real challenge for empirical researchers like me in this field. And the way that we address this challenge and meet it is we are using information published by the CDC on births. And so what we're able to see is that births are increasing in the banned states relative to a set of control states that did not ban abortion and that had births that were trending really similarly right up until the Dobbs decision. And then it's right as the Dobbs decision happens that we observe this very sharp and immediate divergence in births in the states that ban abortion. And so it's reasonable to infer that the reason these 13 banned states suddenly start to have higher births is due to the bans. We know that some people cross state borders in order to terminate a pregnancy. Can you describe the difference between those who did and those who carried out the pregnancy, those who didn't travel? Yeah. So what we can see in the data available so far is that people have been flooding out of banned states to states where abortions remain legal, seeking abortion services. We also know that requests have been increasing to organizations that will mail order medication abortion into banned states. What we know, though, is that not everybody finds one of these avenues to access services. And the people who are the most likely not to find a way to access abortion services are people who are young and women of color. We see much larger effects for black women and Hispanic women. The other interesting dimension of inequality created by bans is how far away people live from the states that haven't banned abortion. So Mm. the other interesting thing that we can see in the data is that all bans aren't created equal. Like Texas is a very big state. And so if you live in Texas, you might have a much harder time traveling to end a pregnancy 
than if you are just over the state line from Illinois, for example. Exactly. And so if you look at our estimates, the effect of Missouri's near total ban is very close to zero. We, mm. we observe very little increase in births in Missouri. Compare that to Texas, where we estimate more than a 5% increase in births. Wow. And the most likely explanation is that Missouri's ban had very little de facto effect on abortion access in Missouri. Even before that state had banned abortion, there was only one abortion facility remaining. It was in St. Louis, very close to abortion facilities that were just across the state border in southern Illinois. And so Missouri's ban only increased the driving distance to the average abortion facility for a Missouri resident by about two miles. Wow. Compare that to Texas. The average Texas resident experienced more than a 450-mile increase in driving distance to the nearest facility. Many of the states near Texas also banned so that, for instance, a Texas woman living in, let's say, Houston who's seeking an abortion now finds that the nearest facility is in Wichita, Kansas, which is a day's drive away. Hmm. Your study is the first to put the Dobbs ruling into this particular kind of perspective. What do you want people to understand about this information? What do you want people to do with it? Well, I don't think as a scientist, it's up to me to have an opinion about what people should do with the information. I do think it's important to have evidence and to have information about how these abortion bans are impacting people on the ground. We had heard a lot of speculation around the time that the bans were beginning to be enforced that people who wanted abortions were all still going to find a way. They were going to travel. They were going to mail order medications. They would find a way. I think it's important to understand that there is a large minority of people, probably around a fifth of people, living in banned states who have been trapped, meaning they haven't found a way. They've been trapped by distance or poverty or other factors in their lives. And as a result, there's an increase in births that are occurring for a particularly poor and vulnerable population. And I hope that that evidence is relevant to the public and policymakers as we think about how to support women and children. That's Caitlin Myers, economics professor at Middlebury College and co-author of the study, The Effects of the Dobbs Decision on Fertility. Thank you very much. Thank you. Irish officials say the country hasn't seen the kind of violence and rioting that overtook Dublin on Thursday night in decades. Rioters torched several city buses and police vehicles and damaged more than a dozen storefronts in the city. Ireland's police chief blamed a, quote, lunatic hooligan faction driven by far-right ideology for the destruction and chaos. It all began with a knife attack in Dublin on Thursday, which left several people wounded, including three young children. Police arrested a suspect, but then hours later, the incident led to protests that quickly spiraled out of control. Villa Marx is in central Dublin this evening and joins us now. Hey there. Hey, Scott. Can you give us a sense of what exactly happened last night and what the city looks like right now? Well, the scenes last night were, for many people in Dublin, just unbelievable, with fires raging on several vehicles, including a city tram, even firefighters being attacked by large crowds of rioters. Hundreds of police responded. And and in fact, they say that last night was Ireland's largest ever deployment of riot police at a single moment. People here seem very surprised by these events, particularly the intensity, but also the scale of the violence. It wasn't just isolated to a couple of streets, but it spread out right across the city centre. 
Authorities say the cost of the damage could run into tens of millions of dollars. There have been 32 arrests so far. There may be more. Tonight, here in the city centre, there's a very heavy police presence, particularly around government buildings near where I am. Workers have been told to head home early before it got too dark. And the head of the police has said that light-touch police tactics that have been used in the past to avoid accusations of heavy-handedness, they'll no longer form part of the response if there is further violence this evening. Mm. Police here in Ireland, they've borrowed water cannons from their counterparts in Northern Ireland. What have police said so far about who was behind this violence? Senior officials have said that far-right groups were responsible. Some have called the country's far-right movements an emerging threat. Others have termed this an attack on Ireland's democracy. It appears that following that knife attack outside a local school here, members of far-right groups started messaging each other on encrypted apps like WhatsApp or Telegram or Signal, seemingly deciding they'd start a protest at the scene of the knife attack. And police estimate that at one point there were around 500 people involved in the rioting. And given these likely motives, what has the political response been so far? Well, there was a cabinet meeting here in Dublin this afternoon led by Prime Minister Leo Varadkar. He says the police have responded appropriately, but he says they may need updated powers for online activity that incites violence. He said the rioters had brought shame on their families and on Ireland itself, that Dublin was once more safe, though. His deputy has said that Ireland's inclusive and tolerant society was something that must be protected. The country's justice minister said that criticism of the country's police was unwarranted and that those seeking to sow division should desist and that the country's political parties should remain united. But one of those political parties, the largest political opposition party here, Sinn Féin, has demanded that both the police chief and that justice minister should resign. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is yet another story about an emboldened far right in Europe. Uh, Does what happened in Ireland indicate a broader trend here? Well, this is unusual in Ireland, although some far right groups have in recent months been kind of engaged in public protests, including outside the parliament near where I am now with opposition to migration, a factor in their protests. And, you know, nobody would deny that the European continent's going through a very complicated period when it comes to international migration. Mm -hmm. And the response has been really felt politically right across the continent. In in Germany, France, Italy, Spain, you've seen far-right parties finding a small but significant voice in their country's parliaments at times over the past decade and more. In the Netherlands just this week, a far-right anti-immigrant party was the most successful in the country's parliamentary elections, and so will likely have the first shot at forming a new government, if they can find other political parties willing to work with them in a coalition. Mm -hmm. But it's really, it's worth ending on this. There are no such far-right populist parties with an anti-immigration platform here in Ireland, and the country's politics are complicated, for sure. But every single one of the political leaders here have come out publicly to criticize last night's events. Okay. That's Willem Marx reporting from Dublin. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Scott. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, people in Egypt who support some U.S. policies are in a difficult position as the death toll in Gaza rises and the U.S. supports Israel. WBUR supporters include Solar Gardens, offering solar subscriptions that allow households to access the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. 
On Wall Street, it was a shortened day of trading. The Dow went up 117 points, one-third of a percent. The S&P gained 0.06 percent, and Nasdaq dropped 0.1 percent. In local business news, an iconic diner in Somerville's Davis Square reopens next week under new ownership. Rosebud Kitchen and Bar opens December 1st with new management and new additions to the menu, according to Boston Business Journal. This after the historic restaurant was set to close. The restaurant opened in 1941, and it's on the National Register of Historic Places. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts today. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Well, not a great day in the Boston sports world. The Celtics lost to the Orlando Magic on the road this afternoon. The final score was 113-96. to And the Bruins fell 5-2 to to the Detroit Red Wings at the Garden this afternoon. Tonight will be a cold one. Temperatures will get down to the mid-20s under mostly clear skies. We'll have highs in the upper 30s tomorrow with lots of sunshine. Sunday will be warmer in the upper 40s with clouds increasing through the day. Then Monday will be wet at least to start. The chance of rain will decrease through the day and Monday's high will be in the low 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Scott Detrow. Artificial intelligence has the potential to fundamentally change our lives for the better and for the worse. That simple truth is fueling the debate in the tech world over how quickly to move forward. It's also on the minds of everyday people as they start using AI in their work. NPR's Andrea Shu reports. Baltimore illustrator John DeCampos has strong feelings about AI dating back to when he discovered that some of his original work had been used to train AI to be smarter. And I'm not famous at all. I'm like a very not well-known dude outside of the world of just Baltimore. He joined the ranks of artists denouncing programs that use AI to create images, pointing out that they were built using work like his scraped from the internet without permission. It's so gross. Practically overnight, programs like Midjourney and DALI have made it possible for anyone to create highly sophisticated images for fun, but also to make money, or if you're a business, to save money. For DeCampos, that's an outrage and a concern. The fact that human expression and art is now at risk and on the chopping block is just like super duper scary to me. Now, DeCampos is hoping to make a living as a board game designer. So yeah, here's some of my stuff here. In his home studio, he shows me his newest release, Black Mold, which he describes as a survival horror escape. It's played with dice and decks of cards, adorned with drawings sprung from his own mind and hand. This game is uh, massive. There's 
easily 50 or 60 hours worth of illustration work in this box. It's work that Decompass knows can be done and is being done elsewhere by AI. As disgusted as he is by that, even he has found a use for AI. Nowadays, he uses ChatGPT to write updates for his Kickstarter followers and social media posts to market his games. He starts by dictating instructions into his phone. I'll say like, these are the qualities of the game that we're selling take all of this information, melt it down into 15 words or less. Give me five different versions written to sell this product on Instagram. He'll take what he likes, make a few edits, and mission accomplished in a fraction of the time. DeCampo says he doesn't have the same ethical issues using AI to generate text as he does with images. And I think that that's probably a lot of implicit bias. And I'm trying to grapple with being maybe a little hypocritical for using generative text. I'm kind of figuring it out. In Michigan, Ethan Kissel has also been thinking about where to draw the line with AI. He produces television commercials for local businesses like car dealerships, mom and pop shops. Lately, he's been turning to ChatGPT for help. It's really good for spitballing ideas. Especially for taglines, that last sentence that's often hard to get right. Kissel found ChatGPT can generate 20, 30, even 50 taglines in 10 seconds. Most of them are probably trash but you take a bit from one and a couple words from another and fashion them all together and suddenly you have something that you actually kind of like. He does see a future in which copywriters are no longer needed. And he thinks voice actors who do narration are also at risk. Already, they'll use AI to fix a mispronunciation if they're on deadline. But he's less worried about his own job, which includes shooting and editing video and meeting with clients. Being a jack of all trades, he says, offers some protection. I don't think it's as scary of a problem for the right now, but it is one that we need to discuss and plan for. Because, he says, like it or not, it's what history has always shown us. Anytime a new technology that helps automate an industry comes out, eventually that technology costs people jobs. Of course, how soon that happens will be shaped by decisions made by actual people, at least for now. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. Shopping online has always been convenient, but never has it been so easy. Targeted ads, free shipping, free returns, stores built into Instagram or TikTok, logins saved on your browser, payment information saved on your device. All that makes it easy to order essentials and maybe too easy to impulse buy expensive and inessential things. Amanda Mall has written about this for The Atlantic, and so on this Black Friday, we've given her a call. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you so much for having me. Was there one specific moment that maybe it struck you online shopping had become a little too easy? Yes. I, I remember this so clearly. It was 2018. It was the summer. I was sitting on my couch in my apartment waiting to go meet some friends and just sort of like idly paging through Instagram to see what everybody did the prior evening. And I hit upon this pair of Nike VaporMax sneakers that were baby pink and very futuristic looking um, and just something broke in my brain and I had to have them in that moment. And I clicked the ad, I clicked through to Nike.com. Um, my login information was saved somewhere in the depths of my phone from when I had last visited that website. Um, my credit card information was, was saved in the browser. Just all of a sudden I had spent 200 bucks on pink sneakers that I uh, had not really even thought about as like a physical object more than like, ooh, shiny. There's this term called friction, which is kind of like how much work it takes for you to get from I want to buy this to it's on its way. 
And the friction has only decreased since that moment you described in 2018. Um, How important is it to the companies that do sales online to reduce that friction? It is so, so important for online retailers to reduce friction for their goals. Online shoppers are really, really easy to derail. Um, Within the industry, it is generally agreed that about 70% of carts that are filled up on retail websites are abandoned before anybody ever makes Hmm. a purchase. So it is incredibly important for them to take away everything that that it provides any sort of like moment to slow down and and think about what you're doing or decide not to do what you're doing uh, as possible. They, they want all of that out of the process. You're talking about this as though it deserves a warning alarm siren, but it could also just sound to a lot of people like customer service, like convenience. Who wants to type in every digit of a credit card every time they want to buy something? Absolutely. The, the way that these moves are sold to consumers in general is is as conveniences and that has the the advantage of often being true like i hate having to type in my credit card number i hate having to remember my login information i hate all of that um but sometimes the things that like are slight inconveniences in life are an opportunity here and there to stop and think about what we're doing You write that you have taken to uh, doing secondhand shopping as a way to counteract some of these problems you're writing about. Why? I got into looking at um, secondhand sites as sort of an outgrowth of selling some of my extra stuff on them. And by being on these services like Poshmark and Depop and eBay, I realized that there was a lot of interesting stuff that other people were selling because I am fundamentally at heart a shopper. Um, And you start looking around those websites and it feels a little bit more like shopping used to feel online. And it feels a little bit more in some ways like shopping in person because secondhand platforms generally do not offer free returns. They may not offer returns at all. And you have to sort of look at pictures closely. You have to look at measurements. You have to understand as much as you can about the physical reality of the product you're buying as a result of those other limitations. And the outgrowth of that has been that I wear and use the stuff that I buy secondhand way more consistently than I wear and use the stuff that I buy brand new, because those purchases are just much better considered. Amanda Mull of The Atlantic, thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, today is widely known as Black Friday, but for some it's Buy Nothing Day, a protest against consumerism that dates back two decades. Well, if you're taking a road trip this fall, use the drive to catch up on your favorite WBUR and NPR shows live, or tap on the WBUR app to rewind shows and play them back. Download the app for free before you hit the road. Well, tonight we'll have mostly clear skies and temps in the mid-20s. Tomorrow looks like a sunny Saturday with temps in the upper 30s. And we'll have a warmer Sunday in the upper 40s with skies getting cloudier throughout the day. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H. Take part in a tradition as Boston as Fenway Park. Handel's Messiah. Three performances, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. HandelandHyden.org. And Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. Sunbugsolar.com. It's often the help of a kindred spirit that gets us through our darkest hours. And in the case of some addicts in recovery, that kindred spirit 
can be found in rescued horses. We're both vulnerable, but it's like that mutual connection that uh, give each other respect and, uh, and love. That story, plus all the latest news Saturday and weekend edition from NPR News. Start your weekend here tomorrow. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Noor Rahm. 24 hostages were freed today after being held captive by Hamas militants since the October 7th attack on Israel. President Biden expressed hope this was the start of what would be further releases in coming days. Israel also released 39 Palestinian prisoners. It was part of a deal that also provides for a four-day pause in fighting. Israel has also agreed to allow the delivery of fuel for humanitarian needs during this time. Now that Israeli airstrikes have paused for now, some Palestinians are returning to their homes in Gaza for the first time since October 7th. NPR producer Anis Baba has more. The people that lived in the southern easterns, their houses, because it's very close to the borders, they took their belongings from the schools and they are like heading back to their houses. Maybe to, to, to just to see it or to have a look on it. As tens of millions of people are traveling this week, gasoline prices are trending lower. NPR's Camilla Dominoski reports. According to the app GasBuddy, gasoline prices are the lowest they've been since January. They have dropped or held steady for more than two straight months. Despite all the road trips people are taking for Thanksgiving, overall, driving declines in the winter. And that decrease in demand means gasoline prices are likely to drop even more in the next few weeks. Meanwhile, global crude prices, which were rising a couple of months ago, have now settled back down, also helping prices ease. Diesel prices are also dropping. That's significant for shipping companies that will be delivering holiday packages. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. It is Black Friday when retailers hope holiday shopping will put their businesses in the black. The National Retail Federation says 74% of Americans had planned to shop online or in stores between yesterday and Monday. You're listening to NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. In Massachusetts, today is officially Green Friday. That's according to a proclamation issued today by Governor Maura Healey to support the state's Christmas tree farms and nurseries. State Agricultural Commissioner Ashley Randall says they provide important agricultural jobs at a time when other farm operations are slowing down. So for farms that grow Christmas trees, this really is a significant part of their income for the year as well as maple production that many of them also do during the winter season. Randall says the sector contributes more than $3.5 million in economic output each year. There are about 400 Christmas tree farms in Massachusetts covering 2,500 acres of land. If you're out shopping today, a local consumer protection group is cautioning against buying certain gifts for children. Joan Siff is president of Boston-based World Against Toys Causing Harm. She says toys to avoid include those with projectiles and small parts that can break off. Siff says if you're buying toys online, send the packages to yourself instead of directly to the child's house. And then open up the toy, read the warnings and instructions, um, because oftentimes what you see online uh, is not the full story. Topping the group's list of most risky toys this year is a water bead toy that increases in size when wet. If swallowed, it could obstruct an airway or cause damage to intestines. 
The U.S. Department of Agriculture has updated its color-coded map showing what plants grow best in what regions, and it shows Massachusetts is getting warmer. That means more plants can survive the winters here. But as WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, the warming raises concerns about the rise of invasive plants and pests. The USDA's Plant Hardiness Zone Map offers a quick look at the average cold temperatures across the country. Massachusetts winters are getting less cold, making the state more welcoming to invasive bugs. Things like southern pine beetle, which we haven't quite seen up here yet, but it's in Long Island. Willie Lorimer is director of horticulture for the Native Plant Trust. And I think it would be particularly devastating if it were to make its way to the Cape, which also has lots of pine trees. Warmer winters can also allow insects to breed twice in one season, says Lorimer, leading to twice as much impact on the trees. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Mostly clear skies tonight, temps in the mid-20s. Tomorrow looks like a sunny Saturday, highs in the upper 30s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, now playing exclusively in theaters. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Scott Detrow. Israel's war against Hamas is closely felt in Egypt, which shares a border with both Israel and the Gaza Strip. The support that Israel is getting from the U.S. as death tolls rise in Gaza has impacted views of the U.S. and the prospects of building peace in the region. NPR's Aya Batraoui was in Cairo and has this report. Noha Bakr has lived through wars between Egypt and Israel in the 1960s and 70s. She's also seen what it takes to build peace. As a political science professor in Cairo, she teaches young Egyptians about a speech in 1977 by Egyptian President Anwar Sadat, in which he told Israel's Knesset that Arab and Israeli lives are of equal value. That speech helped lay the groundwork for Egypt and Israel's peace treaty two years later in 1979. Every time I teach Egyptian foreign policy, I used to make my students listen to it and make content analysis because this is how you build peace. This is how you build confidence. I come from a generation that we were talking about regional peace. But Bucker says that goodwill is being undone now by Israel's war on Gaza, a war that's displaced more than 1.7 million Palestinians from their homes and killed thousands of people, most of them women and children, according to health officials in Gaza. What's happening now has eradicated all our efforts, me and others, working on peace building and and conflict resolution. We're going back. We're going back on all this. It took years to be able to build confidence. It took years for us to see that we can live together. Egypt and Israel's ties are a cornerstone of stability for both countries. But the war is straining relations. Israel says the war is in response to the October 7th attacks by Hamas that Israeli officials say killed 1,200 people, including women and children. It's vowed to destroy Hamas and says the war will continue until every hostage Hamas holds is freed. 
But for weeks now, Egyptians have watched images of Palestinian suffering and of children being pulled from the rubble of Israeli airstrikes. They're not targeting simply Hamas, or at least to be incredibly charitable, let us say the impact of their bombardment is not remotely limited to Hamas. It is the complete entirety of the Gazan population. That's H.A. Hellyer, a scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a longtime Cairo resident. He tells me that even the most anti-Hamas voices within Egypt express solidarity now with the Palestinians. And this fuels opposition to Washington. I have never seen this amount of disconnect between the feelings that I see among people in the region and the sentiments being expressed by the policy establishment in the Beltway. Bucker says U.S. support for Israel's war on Gaza, including sending weapons, erodes Washington's projection of itself as a human rights defender. Part of the United States being a superpower is, is its soft power. It's the films, it's the, the, the human rights, it's the dream. You are losing, the United States is losing on its brand. It's losing on its soft power. And while that luster fades, contempt towards U.S. policy in the Middle East is rising. I honestly feel very bad for the amount of work uh, that American diplomats will have to put in our region because it's a major challenge. There is so much hatred there is so much repugnance. Lina Atallah oversees a newsroom of around 40 staff at Madamast, one of Egypt's only independent news outlets. They've run afoul of government censors, but have defenders in the West. Because of certain circumstances, I managed to become the protagonist who helps a country like the U.S. defend its claim for protection of human rights all over the world. In October, Egypt blocked Madamasser's website for reporting that the government was considering accepting Palestinian refugees from Gaza for resettlement in the Sinai Peninsula, something opposed here and seen as enabling Palestinian dispossession. But Atala says she's not interested in Washington's advocacy for press freedoms in Egypt, not while the U.S. is supporting Israel in a war that's killed at least 45 Palestinian journalists in Gaza. What the U.S. has done and the failure of the U.S. in this war, in terms of the human rights record, undoes everything they did to support me or support other journalists in the region or human rights defenders or, or human rights in general. You know, we always knew that we have to fight our fights with whatever tools we have right now. Definitely support from a country like the U.S. right now is not one such tool at this point. So while U.S. policy in the Middle East is deeply unpopular among Egyptians right now, it's clear from talking to people in Cairo that it's the people of this region who will be the ones bearing the consequences of this war for years to come. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Cairo. A growing number of states require media literacy lessons for K-12 students. California just joined that list. At a time when online misinformation is booming, experts say these lessons are essential. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo reports. California will soon include media literacy lessons in four core subject areas. So that's math, science, history, English language arts. 
and rather than it being a standalone media literacy course, we want students to be taught media literacy concepts throughout these other courses. That's State Assemblymember Mark Berman, who represents a district in the San Francisco Bay Area. He authored the newly passed state law. He says it's an effort to combat the rise of misinformation. This stuff doesn't just live online. It has real world consequences, whether it's uh, climate change denial, whether it's skepticism around vaccines, whether it's the January 6th attempt to overthrow our democracy, a lot of these real world events initially are precipitated by misinformation and disinformation online. California is now the fourth state to require media literacy instruction for all students, starting in kindergarten and going through the 12th grade. It joins New Jersey, Delaware, and Texas. Erin McNeil is the founder and CEO of the nonprofit advocacy group Media Literacy Now. She's been working in this policy space for more than 10 years, and she says now is the time to act. I think we're starting to really see a uh tipping point where people see regular people, parents, legislators, policymakers, people across the board are taking steps to to make it happen. California students won't see this change right away. Curriculum updates first need to go through the State Board of Education, which can take a while. Won't be immediate, but it will get started, which is what we're looking for. The board is set to consider changes to the English curriculum first, but it's important to remember... Some teachers are already doing this. They don't need to wait, but it definitely helps to have the state's resources to vet curriculum, to provide training. California's law goes into effect in the new year. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News. This is NPR News. Who doesn't have a favorite comfort food? Maybe yours is chicken soup or mac and cheese or pepperoni pizza. Our comfort foods are often cheap dishes with humble origins. But what happens when our staple foods become luxuries? Our colleagues Patty Hirsch and Adrian Ma over at The Indicator from Planet Money take a look at fish and chips in the U.K. By any measure, fish and chips are an integral part of the British culinary landscape. 22% of Brits visit a fish and chip shop every week. And Brits spend roughly $1.5 billion on fish and chips every year. And there are more than 10,000 fish and chip shops in the UK. The vast majority are independently owned. And most are these takeout joints where you just kind of take your meal out wrapped up in paper. And they often have these cute names like the Friar Tuck or the Oh My Cod. Or in the case of the one around the corner from my mum's house in Bournemouth, Chips Ahoy. Perry Godfrey's the owner. The shop's been a fish and chip shop for nearly 70 years now. When I took it over, it was very run down. And we built it up in the last 22 years. And thankfully, we're very successful. And um, we keep going from day to day and keep improving, hopefully. Hopefully. Perry says the fish and chip business is coming under some intense pressure right now economy at the moment. The prices have ranked up. Oil, just to open up per day, it cost me £50 just in oil. Fish, fish has doubled in the last, over the last five, six years. Um, Energy, of course, we know all about energy. Packaging's another uh, cost. Yeah, and there are a lot of factors to point a finger at here. There's the war in Ukraine, which drove up the cost of vegetable oil and also the fuel to heat that oil. And 
the U.K. government has also raised interest rates, which has translated into higher rents and more expensive loans. In some shops, the price on the menu board has risen to eye-popping levels, even as much as 20 bucks a head. And that's for a meal that's traditionally been a staple of the British diet eaten by people on low incomes. If you go back 25, 30 years, you know, fish and chips were very, very cheap. Yeah, this is Duncan Weldon. He's the Britain economics writer at The Economist newspaper. If you compare the cost of fish and chips to something like the cheapest meals at a branch of McDonald's, they were very, very comparable in price 20 years ago. Whereas now you're saying you're spending two and a half, three times as much on buying your lunch at a fish and chip shop than compared to a McDonald's. You know, that takes it from being a staple to being essentially a luxury item. And this story of a staple becoming a luxury is not a new one. It happened to oysters in New York in the 1800s, to sushi in Japan, to caviar, brisket, lobster. <laughs> you just named it like all the delicious foods. What's going on here? I'm just trying to make the point here that economics often drives long-term changes in diet and taste. And that right now the UK is going through a big change with this staple, fish and chips. Now, before people go out and start like panic buying fried fish and chips... <laughs> <laughs> this does not mean that the fish and chip shops are going to disappear, like, overnight altogether. No, no. The dish is still hugely popular in the UK. And the restaurants are kind of part of the fabric of the community in a way that fast food chain joints are absolutely not. In Bournemouth, Perry Godfrey says the customers who visit his fish and chip shop certainly see things that way. Adrian Ma. Patty Hirsch, NPR News. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And we're glad you're with us here on 90.9 WBUR this evening. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, we'll have the latest on the hostages released by Hamas and Palestinian prisoners released by Israel today. And a play based on the Supreme Court decision that struck down Roe v. Wade is performed in Louisiana, where abortion is now heavily restricted. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. And the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Start your holiday weekend with 90.9 WBUR tomorrow morning. The International Committee of the Red Cross is assisting with the transfer of hostages from Gaza to Israel. We'll talk with one of the organizers. That story and wait, wait at 10 tomorrow on WBUR. Tonight will be mostly clear and quite chilly with temperatures in the mid-20s. We'll get to the upper 30s tomorrow with sunny skies. Sunday, it'll be sunny to start, but clouds will increase throughout the day and temps will get to the upper 40s. And then the rain moves in for Monday. Right now, it's 43 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Tiziana Deering. 
My colleagues and I at NPR and at WBUR are covering the Israel-Hamas war and the resulting humanitarian crisis. Whether we're reporting on the front lines or making sense of the crisis from thousands of miles away, our journalism requires editorial rigor, skill, and sensitivity. Support the journalism you trust. Make your end-of-year gift at WBUR.org. And thanks. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Scott Detrow. Black Friday is traditionally the biggest day of the year for retail spending, but if you're tired of this annual exercise in consumption, you're in luck, because today is also Buy Nothing Day. It came out of an anti-consumerist movement in raising awareness that we don't have to actually buy so much and that we can save money, we can reduce the amount of waste to landfills, and share with each other instead. That's Liesl Clark, co-founder of the Buy Nothing Project. Buy Nothing Day was started in 1992 by activists who felt that buying stuff was polluting, quote, our culture, our souls, our planet, according to Adbusters magazine. The Buy Nothing Project continues this legacy by encouraging the creation of local gift-based economies. Clark and a friend created the first Buy Nothing group in 2013 when they noticed plastic waste was polluting their community. They organized a Facebook group. And we basically just said, hey, neighbors, whatever you're going to the store to buy today, before you do that, just post here and let everyone know what you're going to buy. And let's see if we can take care of each other. And let's see if your neighbor actually has what you're looking for. Now there are buy nothing groups all over the world where members gift and request everything from furniture to tools to food. We have an app for anybody to start connecting with neighbors and posting whatever you'd like to give, whatever you'd like to ask for, or you can also express your gratitude once you've received something. So if you want to skip the lines and save money this Black Friday, you can celebrate Buy Nothing Day instead. And isn't free the best Black Friday deal of all? There was a time when you could fly from New York City to London at twice the speed of sound. It was in futuristic TV ads like this one from the 1970s. The world is about to become a smaller place. Soon you'll be able to travel a mile every three seconds. On this flight, passengers dine on caviar and sip champagne while zipping across the Atlantic Ocean in just three and a half hours. The phenomenal Concorde from British Airways. On November 26, 2003, the Concorde supersonic airliner made its final flight, the end of a groundbreaking chapter in aviation history. NPR's Jack Mitchell takes us back. A slender white fuselage, a pointy nose that moves up and down, and a delta wing that forms a triangle. An Air France pilot tells NPR that flying Concorde is like flying a fighter jet. In this country in particular, you always say that time is money. And I think Concorde is the answer to that. Concorde was a joint project between Britain and France, which is partly why the plane is synonymous with two airlines, British Airways and Air France. The plane's first commercial flight to the U.S. dates back to May 24, 1976. Concorde took off from London at a height of 55,000 feet, Mach 2, twice the speed of sound, and landed with a roar at Dulles International Airport outside Washington, D.C. Concorde herself, stretching her wings, is like a beautiful swan. Travel time between the two continents was cut in half. British Airways and Air France officials marked the moment with a celebratory news conference. The Mayflower took 66 days across the Atlantic. 
In the 19th century, ships took about four weeks. The great liners used to take about four days. We took less than four hours. Concorde's early triumph is hardly without turbulence. Environmental advocates criticize the plane's inefficiency and argue its emissions will damage the ozone layer. Concorde guzzles four times more fuel than a jumbo jet like the 747, which can also carry nearly 500 passengers, while Concorde's cramped seating arrangement can carry just 100. And a round-trip ticket in the 1990s could cost as much as $10,000. That's about $20,000 in today's money. People on the ground complain about Concorde's noise and its alarming sonic booms as it breaks the sound barrier over the Atlantic. I'm very much a concerned citizen. I live in town, and no, I don't want it landing. It sounds to me like it's going to be very disruptive of our already troubled environment. It's a marvelous scientific project, which we really don't need. Concorde defies its critics. For almost three decades, the jets keep flying and shattering records. In 1996, a British Airways Concorde crosses from New York to London in just two hours, 52 minutes, and 59 seconds, which to this day is the fastest transatlantic crossing by a passenger jet. Concorde becomes the trendy way to travel for the rich and famous. Paul McCartney, Princess Diana, Mike Tyson, Elizabeth Taylor. In 1985, during the worldwide benefit concert Live Aid, Phil Collins played the London stage, then boarded Concorde and made it to the U.S. in time to play the Philadelphia stage, all on the same day. I was in England this afternoon. Funny old world, isn't it? Over the years, the cost to maintain the aging supersonic jets becomes more and more expensive. And even though Concorde has a reliable safety record, on July 25th, 2000, everything changes. loud roaring noise. We saw something fall from the tail and then the plane crashed. The crash of the Concorde outside Paris. An Air France Concorde taking off from Paris strikes a piece of metal debris left behind by another plane on the runway. The debris punctures one of the Concorde's tires, sending chunks of rubber into the fuel tank. The Concorde's left wing bursts into flames before the plane crashes into a roadside motel. The smoke was so thick and sort of uh, noxious. NPR's Sarah Chase was at the crash site. We saw earlier a line of vans that appeared to be hearses, which may have been carrying out, um, uh, you know, some of the bodies and also... A... All 109 people on board are killed, along with four people on the ground. Aviation authorities immediately ground every Concorde still in service. The planes won't return for over a year amid government investigations and intense regulatory scrutiny. But Concorde never fully recovers. The crash does lasting damage to consumer confidence. Then 9-11 rocks the airline industry. The sky-high costs of supersonic jet travel become even more difficult to justify. Lifting into the skies with its characteristic elegance and the distinctive roar of the engines, there is no other aircraft like this. There will probably never be another aircraft like this, and so it marks the end of an extraordinary chapter in aviation history. On November 26, so 2003, Concorde makes its last ever flight, landing in Bristol, England, greeted by a cheering crowd gathered behind fences near the runway. These days, Concorde is sitting in museums all over the world, 
but passenger air travel at the speed of sound may not be gone for good. NASA and Lockheed Martin are developing a supersonic aircraft that reduces the loudness of a sonic boom. And a Colorado-based company called Boom has deals with major airlines like American and United to buy its supersonic plane, which is still in development. The company says the jets will one day cut travel time across the Atlantic in half. Sound familiar? Jack Mitchell, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Subaru, the Subaru Share the Love event runs through January 2nd. By year's end, Subaru and its retailers will have donated over $285 million to charity. Subaru.com slash share. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Well, whether you're traveling or picking through leftovers this evening, head to WBUR.org slash podcast picks for good listening this holiday. That's WBUR.org slash podcast picks. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald. And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Thirteen Israeli women and children are among two dozen hostages released from Hamas custody today. That is, Israel releases almost 40 Palestinian prisoners and detainees. It's all part of a deal that includes a temporary ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. It's Friday, November 24th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, a district attorney in Oklahoma works with a local tribe to get gang violence in one town under control. And a play based on the Supreme Court case that struck down Roe v. Wade is performed in Louisiana, where abortion is heavily restricted. Plus, a head-on marketplace for small business owners dealing with supply issues and rising costs can be tricky. One of the bigger challenges has been um, supply of stuff like eggs and butter. And it's just been surprising because we've never encountered shortages like we have before. That's at 6.30. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. After seven weeks of captivity, 24 hostages seized in the October 7th attack on Israel have been released by Hamas and are being checked out by medical personnel. They include Israelis, Thais, and a Filipino man, this during a temporary four-day ceasefire. President Biden praised the release. All of these hostages have been through a terrible ordeal. 
and this is the beginning of a long journey of healing for them. The teddy bears waiting to greet those children at the hospital are a stark reminder of the trauma these children have been through and at such a very young age. It's the first group of around 50 hostages expected to be freed over the next four days. Americans were not in the first round, but Biden says he's hopeful they will be included in upcoming releases. In exchange, Israel released 39 Palestinian prisoners from jails in the occupied West Bank. Meanwhile, as the ceasefire takes hold, more humanitarian aid is flowing into the Gaza Strip. NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv reports the agreement mediated by Qatar also calls for more humanitarian aid to flow into Gaza because the territory is desperately short of basic necessities. In the first hours of the ceasefire, the Palestinian Red Crescent said dozens of trucks arrived from neighboring Egypt with food, water and medicine. Hamas says the ceasefire deal allows 200 aid trucks a day to enter Gaza, a large increase over recent weeks. Also, Palestinians began to emerge on the streets of Han Yunus, the largest city in the southern part of Gaza. Israeli ground forces are in northern Gaza and warned the remaining Palestinians in that part of the territory to stay put. A military statement said, quote, the war is not over yet. The ceasefire for humanitarian purposes is temporary. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Political organizers are off to the races to get potential voters energized ahead of the 2024 presidential election. As NPR's Humanat Bustillo reports, this includes efforts to mobilize indigenous voters as well. Organizers are turning to Native American and Alaska Native voters as a bloc that could make a difference in key swing states. They could be crucial in the presidential race in states like Arizona, North Carolina, and Wisconsin, and in the Senate race in Montana and the House race in Nevada, for example. But organizers say that there's still work to be done across the country to remove barriers to voting. In some instances, voters on reservations may have to drive hours to get to a polling location or may not have a street address, which means they can't get mail-in ballots. Other challenges include ID laws and general voter awareness about elections. But political parties also have work to do, organizers say, to get voters on their side. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Massachusetts public health officials report nearly 2,000 new COVID cases over the last seven days. That represents a week-over-week uptick of about 200 cases in the state. It comes after COVID levels in Boston increased more than 90 percent in the first weeks of November. The city's public health commission is giving out thousands of rapid tests at locations across the city. A Hyde Park resident is one of 16 young leaders selected for a new federal advisory committee on climate change. Harvard junior Osa Senega Adiha will serve two years on the EPA's new Environmental Youth Advisory Council. He says he hopes the experience will help him communicate the effects of climate change. I want to make sure that people are aware for communities like Hyde Park that there is a connection between their environment and their health. The council is the first at the EPA with all members under age 30. Idaha is the only member chosen from Massachusetts. A touring collection of works by Rembrandt has made its way from the Netherlands to Massachusetts. WBUR's Solon Kelleher reports on the global debut of the exhibit at Worcester Art Museum. Rembrandt is regarded as one of the world's greatest painters and portraitists, but his black and white etchings won him the most attention during his lifetime. The exhibit at the Worcester Art Museum examines Rembrandt's life and art through his prints, 
Claire Whitner is the museum's director of curatorial affairs. Printmaking is hugely important for Rembrandt because this is how the world really gets to know him, even yeah. more so than in his paintings, because prints are so much more mobile. This collection of 70 Rembrandt etchings is among the largest to ever be shown in the United States. The exhibition will be on display in Worcester through February 19th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. Tonight will be a cold one. Temperatures will get down to the mid-20s under mostly clear skies. We'll have highs in the upper 30s tomorrow with lots of sunshine. Sunday will be warmer in the upper 40s, but clouds will increase throughout the day. Then Monday will be wet, at least to start. The chances of rain decrease throughout the day. Monday's high will be in the low 50s. Right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Scott Detrow. The first day of an Israel-Hamas ceasefire was filled with drama and some tense moments. Yet the temporary truce did take hold, and as planned, Israeli hostages... Palestinian prisoners were freed. In fact, a surprise development resulted in more releases than expected. President Biden weighed in, saying he liked what he saw. It's only a start, but so far it's gone well. We're joined now by two NPR correspondents in the Middle East. Greg Myrie is in Tel Aviv and Brian Mann is in the West Bank city of Ramallah. Greg, let's start with you. How did the release of the Israeli hostages play out? Yeah, it was a pretty complicated arrangement with lots of moving parts. Now, Hamas released 13 Israeli hostages, women and children, as expected, and they were they were freed in southern Gaza. The Red Cross then drove them across the border into Egypt and then into southern Israel, and then they went to a military air base uh, for an initial checkup, and, and now some of them have already been flown to hospitals in the Tel Aviv area for more extensive checkups. Uh, on both their uh, medical and emotional condition after this seven-week ordeal. Those freed were the young and the old, four children aged nine or younger. One woman was 85. Five more women were in their 70s. Twelve of the 13 came from the same kibbutz Mm -hmm. near Oz, which was uh, overrun by Hamas on October 7th. And they were believed to be held by Hamas in in the tunnels in Gaza and may have very limited knowledge of what happened that day. Kids lost parents. Many lost friends and relatives. So after this traumatic ordeal, they may face some additional shocks. Yeah. I mean, Hamas freed additional hostages that were not expected to be released today. What can you tell us about that? So Hamas also released 10 citizens of Thailand and one from the Philippines. We knew that foreign nationals, many of them agricultural workers, were being held, but we didn't know they were going to be released today. So this came as a surprise. They were freed along with the Israelis, uh, but more foreign nationals are still being held, including several Americans. I'm going to go now to Brian Mann, who's in the West Bank. Uh, Brian, Israel released an even larger number of Palestinian prisoners. What did you see today? 
Well, this prisoner release, Scott, just sparked a massive outpouring of people here in Ramallah. There were protests and gatherings in different parts of the city through the day. This afternoon, I was near the checkpoint where these young Palestinians, all of them under the age of 19, were handed over. It was pretty tense with Israelis uh, firing tear gas into the crowd. The International Red Crescent says one young Palestinian was injured. And then I want you to hear what it sounded like as the first young prisoners, all Palestinian teenage boys, uh, as they came into one of the main squares in the heart of Ramallah. And, and what's remarkable there is that a lot of the chanting, a lot of flags were in praise of Hamas and its leaders, people chanting support for the men who carried out that October 7 terror attack. That violence, of course, left 1,200 Israelis dead, but it's seen by many here as an act of resistance uh, against the Israeli occupation. Yeah, and I mean, we, we've been focused so much on the war in Gaza. How would you describe the atmosphere in the West Bank where you are? It's such a volatile chemistry, Scott. There's rage and frustration with Israel's occupation, which has gone on for years. So many Palestinians have been arrested or detained just in the last few weeks since the October 7 terror attack. People here are also outraged by the violence they've seen unfolding in Gaza, which of course has killed thousands of civilians and, and many children there. But but then along with all that outrage, there were also moments of real tenderness, you know, families being reunited here. I spoke to uh, Walla Othman, who's 36, and she was celebrating the return of her 16-year-old son, Lais. She told me she's just overjoyed, so happy to see her boy after the nine months he was detained by Israel. She said he was taken into custody for throwing stones at Israeli soldiers. Israel, of course, views that as an act supporting terrorism. Uh, but people here, including his, his mom, they see it as an act of resistance. Mm -hmm. so, so, Brian, both the Israelis and Palestinians delivered today on their obligations, and that was not a given. Does that mean that we should expect the next few days to go the same way? You know, the big thing I heard is a lot of fear here about violence returning to Gaza after the four-day pause that's planned. People here in the West Bank uh, think there's a risk of more violence here as well. But today was promising uh, that at least this process so far seems to be playing out, if not smoothly, at least successfully. Uh, but as you've been hearing, it was pretty chaotic. I think we're going to have to watch this day by day to see see what happens. Yeah. Going to go back to Greg Myrie now. Is this temporary truce helping with the humanitarian crisis in Gaza? Well, it certainly helped today, Scott. It looks like more aid entered Gaza today than any day since the war broke out seven weeks ago. The United Nations says that 200 aid trucks crossed from neighboring Egypt into southern Gaza with water, food, and medicine. This also included several trucks with fuel and cooking gas, uh, two items that are uh, desperately needed. Uh, so this certainly helps, but it's still just a small fraction of what Gaza needs. And again, this is a temporary pause, uh, hope last uh, four days. It could be extended for up to maybe as, as long as 10 days. But uh, if, if that's uh, the only period that this additional aid gets into Gaza, then it's by no means a permanent solution. There's more than two million people in the territory. Mm -hmm. Virtually everyone needs uh, some sort of assistance. Greg, I'm going to end with an optimistic question. Does this breakthrough today that we saw uh, with, with prisoner exchange, hostage exchange, with the truce holding, for, for the day at least, does this suggest that we could see additional negotiations toward a longer-term ceasefire or even an end to the war? 
So, Scott, I think that still seems a long way off at this point. The Israeli leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, continues to stress that his goal is the complete destruction of Hamas. And you certainly have a long way to go. The Israelis are controlling much of northern Gaza, but they haven't gone into southern Gaza on the ground, so we could see more heavy fighting there. Netanyahu says that Israel is just not interested in a long-term ceasefire and is is promising essentially that the war will continue. Mm -hmm. Uh, President Biden in his remarks this afternoon said that the Israeli goal of uh, eliminating Hamas was indeed legitimate. And for its part, Hamas still holds more than 200 hostages. This includes Israeli men and soldiers. And the militant group knows this gives them some leverage and it is likely to make very, very tough demands uh, when it comes to, to this group of hostages. That was NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv, as well as Brian Mann in the West Bank. Thanks to both of you. When the play Roe premiered in 2016, the landmark Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade was still the law of the land. The play follows two major characters, Jane Roe and her attorney, as they wrestle with their own views on abortion. An updated version was recently staged in Louisiana, a state that now has a near-total abortion ban. Aubrey Uhas of member station WWNO reports, and a note, this story contains descriptions of abortion methods. The abortion debate in the U.S. was far from settled when Roe the play premiered. Many believed it was just a matter of time before the 1973 ruling would be overturned. And they were right. You know, there are certain lines in the play that are not true in the state of Louisiana. Lori Parquet is the director of the state's first production of Roe, put on this month by Louisiana State University's theater department in Baton Rouge. Even though the play was updated after Roe fell last year, Parquet says it doesn't feel totally up to date in a place where it's almost impossible to get an abortion. Still, its new opening line hits home. Good evening. My name is Sarah Weddington. And I was the lawyer who argued Roe versus Wade. And tonight, I deliver its obituary. The play's preview was sold out. Its 200 seats were filled mostly with college undergrads. Anyone here remember what it was like before Roe? That's all right. You weren't alive yet. Understandable. For students, the play is both historic and contemporary. They're living in a world without Roe for the first time and it shows. Weddington talks about how before abortion was legal, some hospitals had entire wards dedicated to botched procedures and at-home attempts. Some women do it themselves. They take Lysol or turpentine. They use a telephone wire. From the audience, a trio of young men drop their jaws in Chopsticks. horror. These women shouldn't have to do this. It has to change. Roe is meant to show the many sides of the issue. The idea is to bridge the divide by focusing on the people behind the case and their own messy views on abortion. The play has seen a spike in popularity since Roe versus Wade fell, especially in states with tough abortion laws. Parquet, the director, says the role of theater is to help people understand the present. And sometimes that means going into very charged territory. I hope everyone felt heard. Kate Zenor plays Linda Coffey, Weddington's co-counsel and a number of other characters on both sides of the issue. Her family, including her 92-year-old grandfather, saw the show. 
they all oppose abortion rights. My mom was asking me, like, well, is the show pro-choice or pro-life? And I kind of told her, I'm like, a lot of people who are pro-life think the show is too pro-choice, and a lot of people who are pro-choice kind of think the show is a bit too pro-life. So I'm like, we're kind of just aiming to make everyone mad a little bit. <laughs> After the show, students were willing to share their thoughts on the play, and some on abortion more generally, like Tyrell Thompson. At first, I felt like, like a woman should have a kid, but now, like, I just feel like it should be open to whatever they feel. And, like, everybody has their own side, but you don't know everybody's story, so... Abortion is a largely settled issue among elected officials in Louisiana. Many politicians in the state oppose abortion rights, including Democrats. Roe is dead here, but Roe the play lives on. For NPR News, I'm Aubrey Uhas in Baton Rouge. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next on WBUR's All Things Considered, retail discounts trigger our fear of missing out and spark anticipation of owning some amazing new thing. We'll dive into the psychology of discounts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, helping Massachusetts residents understand their options when faced with aging or inefficient heating systems. Learn how to heat smart at GoEndlessEnergy.com. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, and now in Beverly. Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston. On Wall Street today, in a shortened day of trading, the Dow gained a third of a percent, 117 points. The S&P inched up 0.06 percent. NASDAQ lost 0.1 percent. In local business news, Massachusetts lawmakers are looking to give a boost to local downtowns still struggling after the pandemic. Legislators are considering bills to create a new fund to improve commercial and cultural neighborhoods around the state. The proposal would put 5% of online sales taxes toward the program. Supporters tell the Boston Business Journal the money could go toward programming, marketing, and events for the districts. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Home for Little Wanderers, creating better, brighter futures for kids. Because no child should go through life alone. Thehome.org. And Greener You a climate action construction firm that helps to cut building emissions throughout New England. Learn more at greeneru.com. We'll have mostly clear skies tonight as temps dip to the mid-20s. Tomorrow looks like another sunny day. We'll have highs in the upper 30s. It'll be warmer on Sunday in the upper 40s with increasing clouds. Then Monday we'll see rain, most of it before midday. Temperatures Monday in the low 50s. The sun returns for Tuesday with temps in the low 40s. It's 40 degrees right now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. On this week's Wait, Wait, Eric Schmidt, the former chairman of Google, explains why you would want to work there, or not. Free breakfast, lunch, and dinner, massages, you name it, bring your dog to work, bring your other pets. We had one employee decide that the policy allowed him to bring his boa constrictor to work. I'm Peter Sagal. Listen to this week's show with the animal of your choice. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Scott Detrow. Why is it so hard for the human brain to resist a discount? Let's do a Black Friday experiment. See how you feel 
when you hear this. Buy one, get one, half off everything. Buy one, get one deals throughout the store. This is a radio program, not a store, but still, maybe you can't help wonder what's on sale. What's that four-letter word doing to your psyche? NPR's Alina Selyuk reports. If sales generally can feel hard to resist, the sale in front of Aaron Shervich was the ultimate test. Snatch this opportunity before it evaporates. It was a car at a dealership he trusted in Omaha, Nebraska, right when he really needed one in peak pandemic shortages, the very same Kia as he'd had before and loved $4,000 off. Today, it's this price. Almost a 25% discount. I figured that I would be an idiot not to take advantage of that. So he did, speed through paperwork. You know, it's that that kind of voice in the back of my head that's like, well, are you are you being a sucker? And unfortunately, that day, that voice was a little bit quieter than it ought to have been. The deal went south. There were hidden charges. His brand new car needed repairs. Shervich jokes now that he paid a tax for being a fool. But his big ticket example illustrates the dynamics that play out when any of us fall for a sale. It's not always bad, but always a rush. The human brain has essentially evolved to feel first and think next. Carolyn Yoon studies consumer neuroscience at the University of Michigan. She says seeing something you like on sale activates the emotional part of the brain. The whole reward circuitry is activated. And that's where you get that hit of dopamine that motivates you to go for what makes you feel good. As a shopper, you have that reward circuitry. It's pumping you up. You're already imagining how life with this new thing will be so great. And as a counterbalance, you have your cognitive function, which is like a little accountant saying, Do I really need this? Is it really worth it? I have a budget. But then a sale is like a thumb tipping that mental scale. In fact, for most of us, just getting the discount, just finding it, already registers as a gain, rewarding in and of itself, says Jorge Barraza, a consumer psychologist at the University of Southern California. Not only are we getting the product, but we're also getting that reward that we we discovered something, we've earned this extra thing. And then we layer more emotional baggage on that scale, like FOMO, the fear of missing out. This kind of need to avoid losses or what's referred to as loss aversion, right? This is where the FOMO could come in. Like, I will be losing out if I don't take advantage of the sale. Stores obviously know this about us, and they try to push these buttons. They create urgency, like that car dealership saying, the price is today only. They create scarcity, Black Friday sale while supplies last. It's not just limited time, but if I don't go, they might run out of this thing and I might not be able to get it. Stores also use all kinds of pricing tricks. A common one is a decoy price. That's when you see, for example, on the candy shelf, there's a big bag and a medium bag, but the medium size is much smaller and only a little cheaper. So you get the big one thinking it's the best deal and the store has sold you the most expensive option they have. But to make us all feel a little better, even experts struggle to resist sales. This literally happened to me last year. Barraza came to look at TVs and instead almost bought a video game console. Swept up by the excitement and the urgency and the fear of missing out, he and others say one way to tackle this is to stick to a shopping list planned in advance or do some Googling to see if that discount really is a particularly good deal. But fundamentally, it's all about giving yourself time to think, which Barraza was forced to do standing with that gaming system in a long line to check out. I was saved by that line. It gave me enough time to reflect. Remember, we feel first, think later. So give your internal accountant a bit of a fighting chance. Alina Seluch, NPR News.
Let's look at how one Supreme Court decision rippled out through a small town in Oklahoma. When the town experienced a rash of gang violence, state prosecutors were hamstrung because the town sits on Native American land. Max Bryan from member station KWGS in Tulsa reports the local district attorney banked on his relationship with the local tribe to fight the violence. It's not too bad outside, Delaney. Oh, how are you doing today? (laughs) That's Jeremy Fultz opening the Seminole Nation Oklahoma radio show. Once a week, Fultz and his co-host talk about community events and read announcements for members of the Seminole Nation in central Oklahoma. And on October 31st, Fultz took a break talking about Halloween festivities to read this statement. The Seminole Nation Light Horse Police Department has been actively investigating several major crimes in the city of Wewoka. Uh, These crimes are related to gang activities between two gangs. For weeks, Wewoka, a central Oklahoma town of 3,000, saw several shootings, including a homicide allegedly tied to gangs. One of the gangs is primarily indigenous. The violence led to the cancellation of a popular festival. Wewoka Public Schools canceled class for a day. And some people in Wewoka, like local pastor Joe Ward, weren't taking any chances. We'll have a code word in our bulletin that everybody in here will know that they can, if I ever say it from the pulpit, because I can see the doors, unless they're told otherwise, they're going to be hitting the floor and getting out of getting out of view of whoever's coming in. In early November, six suspects in connection with the violence were arrested. But prosecuting gang members can be tricky in this part of the country. Because of a 2020 Supreme Court decision, the local district attorney cannot prosecute any indigenous members of the two gangs. In McGirt versus Oklahoma, the high court ruled eastern Oklahoma, including Wewoka, is a Native American reservation, so only tribal and federal law applies to indigenous people. And for District Attorney Eric Johnson, that means building relationships within the Seminole tribe. We all have the same interest, and so it's just finding that common ground. Johnson's willingness to work with the tribe contrasts the attitude of Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt, who has openly opposed the Supreme Court decision. His opposition has led to a fractured relationship with the tribes as the state and its local prosecutors can no longer charge native residents with crimes. But at the Seminole State of the Nation address this year, Assistant Principal Chief Brian Palmer said his tribe can look after itself. Our courts are able to protect us. We are prosecuting everything from the worst crimes of rape and murder down to a traffic ticket. And that is the responsible thing to do. That's the thing to do for our people. And in this latest outbreak of gang violence, they have worked with Johnson and the feds. Johnson points out that tribal courts are only capable of sentencing defendants to up to three years in prison, which means serious crimes are better handled by the federal courts. Johnson says to keep his community safe, it's critical to work with the tribes and the feds. With the relationships we have in Seminole County and specifically in Wawoka, uh, with all the federal assets and my cooperation that I've received from the U.S. Attorney's Office, I don't feel like I'm going to have any challenges like that. Since the six suspects were apprehended, things have started to calm down in Wewoka, and authorities say more arrests are possible. For NPR News, I'm Max Bryan in Tulsa.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for spending part of your evening with us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, how some companies plan to control all that noise as they urge employees to leave their quiet at-home workspaces and return to the chatty office that's ahead on Marketplace. We'll have mostly clear skies tonight and temps in the mid-20s. Tomorrow looks like a sunny Saturday with highs in the upper 30s. Increasing clouds for Sunday. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 630. The conflict between Israel and Hamas, deep division in Congress and a looming election, devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR bring you the latest developments on all of these fronts and the context to help make sense of what can, at times, feel like a senseless world. Keep our journalism strong with your year-end contribution. Give at WBUR.org and thanks.